You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Any of you guys have someone in your life that tends to be happy all the time? Like tends to just carry joy with them? A few of you, maybe, like constantly happy. Yeah, aren't those people the worst? <laughs> right? I'm kind of being a little sarcastic, but kind of truthful too, right? Some of us have a really difficult time with people who are regularly rejoicing or happy because it's like, are you naive? Like, do you not see what's going on in the world? Have you not read the headlines? Have you not doom scrolled lately? My mom was this sort of person for me growing up. <laughs> She would often like throw on music from the 60s or 70s that my brother and I were always way too cool for. And then she'd start dancing. And like classic weird mom dances that no one had ever actually danced before, <laughs> right? Like she made up a new thing every time. And then she tried to coax my brother and I up from the couch to dance with her and celebrate with her. And my brother and I were like, come on, mom. Somebody's got to be an adult here, right? Somebody needs to be mature. There's way too much. We, we can't really celebrate and rejoice with you in this way. And I have all these memories of my mom doing this when my brother and I were growing up. And as I've reflected on them, I've realized my mom wasn't naive. My mom wasn't overlooking the brokenness of the world. She knew it. She had been through the ringer. And she still regularly found time and space to rejoice in her life. And that has made me ask a pretty pertinent question for myself. And I think it's one for our community, especially with what's been going on in our world the last couple years. What if there's a way what if there's a way to truly recognize all the brokenness that exists out there and still rejoice? What if there's a way to be completely honest about the darkness that's in us and around us and still sing and shout for joy in our lives? We're in the middle of a sermon series that we're calling You're Invited here uh, during this Advent season. And the reason we're calling it that is because we're looking at different parts of this new and different life that God calls us into. God invites us to live differently, a way that the world won't quite fully understand. And today, we're going to be uh, looking, how this or looking at how this library of texts invites us to rejoice, invites us to recognize brokenness, to understand it exists, and to still find joy in our lives. And we're going to do that by looking at the prophet Zephaniah. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me to the book of Zephaniah. It is a small three-chapter book. It's between Habakkuk and Haggai, if you're flipping there in your Bibles. It's sandwiched by two H's. Uh, and uh, we're also going to have the text up on the screen for you if you'd like to follow along here as well. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20 is where we're going to be. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. And I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. 
I will deal with all your oppressors at that time, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you home, at the time when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So the cynics and skeptics in the room, I already know what's going on in your head. You're like, hold on. All he's talking about is the nice things, the rejoicing, the joy, right? That's, that seems like some of that weird Christian false encouragement stuff that overlooks the brokenness of the world, right? That, that sounds a little too happy for me. But let's remember, before we jump to that conclusion, that we are in the third chapter of Zephaniah. There's much that has come before this in his writing. And what we find is in the first two and a half chapters, he is fully aware of all that's going wrong in the world around him. He names it over and over. See, Zephaniah, I'm gonna start calling him Zeph for the sake of brevity the rest of the time. Our boy Zeph here. Zeph lived in a nation called Judah. We talked about the history of this nation a little bit last week. Judah was called by God to partner with him to bring redemption and restoration to this broken world. God was longing to restore the life and flourishing that this world was made to function with at the beginning, and he calls this nation of Judah to partner with him in that work by loving God and loving others. And that's actually the whole story of the Bible. From cover to cover, it's about God longing to bring humans into partnership with him so that this world can flourish. But Zeph, he's looking around the world at these people of Judah, and it's quite clear to him that they are failing miserably to partner with God. He actually is seeing that they look far more like the corrupt and oppressive nations around them than they do like followers of the Lord. They're adopting the gods and practices of the other nations, and they've gotten so far from the way that God called them to be that they don't even recognize they're missing it. They don't even realize it's happening. They've just decided to say, you know, God doesn't have that big a role in our lives. It doesn't really matter. We can kind of make this work on our own. We don't need God's defining of life for us. And so they devote their lives to fulfilling their own needs, safeguarding their own well-being, prioritizing themselves and defining life on their own. And the very people who are supposed to know God best end up being the ones who are farthest away from him, the ones who neglect him, because they trust in their own ability, in their own structure, in their own society, instead of in the Lord. And Zeph knows this isn't going to end very well. He knows that if you sever your connection to the source of life, it's going to bring death. It's going to bring destruction and decay. It's not the way that we're designed to live. If you fail to love God and love others, the consequences aren't good. And so Zeph's response, collected for us in this book, is to write a bunch of slam poems. Legitimately, that's what he's doing. This, this is a collection of poetry, ancient poetry, and it has a lot of connection to what we understand in our culture to be slam poetry. He uses rhymes, alliteration, puns, and we miss a lot of those things in our English translations, but in the Hebrew, it's really interesting and compelling. A couple examples. Earlier in the book, Zeph says that God will sweep away humanity from this land, from this area, because they failed to partner with him, that destruction is going to come because of what they've done. And the words that he uses there for humanity and for land or earth are very similar. Humanity is Adam and land is Adamah. So he's saying God is going to sweep away the Adam from the Adamah. It's this cool poetic device he's using. There's another passage where he mentions that these people have trusted so fully in the wealth that they have and their material possessions that ultimately they've neglected God entirely. 
They're trusting only in their silver and gold, he said. And so he tells them that those who trust in those things, those who trust in silver, will be put to shame. And the words for shame and silver are also similar, kesef and kasaf. Those who trust in kesef will be put to kasaf, Zeph says. And he's over and over poetically pointing out that Israel has failed to adopt the love of God and the love of others as the primary motivation in their lives. And that ultimately will lead them into the life of death and destruction that they experience. Soon, an oppressive nation will come and rip them from their homes. And they'll be wondering, where is God in the middle of all of this? So, that's the first two and a half chapters of Zeph. And that should make us ask, so how does he land with joy at the end, right? How does he get to a place of rejoicing if for two and a half chapters he's talking about all of the ways that, well, the opposite of joy and rejoicing will come? Well, there's a couple different ways that Zeph mentions joy here, and a couple different things I want to pull out of the text. Four, in fact. There's four ways that Zeph gives us uh, as reminders of, of why we should be rejoicing. The first of these is the forgiveness of God, that the grace and forgiveness of God is something to rejoice in. And that seems contradictory with what he's written before. It's like, all right, God is going to bring death and destruction, but God is always also going to reprieve that destruction, that judgment. Which is it, right? Is God merciful or is God just? Which of those things is true? And we get a clue when Zeph starts to categorize the people of Judah in a couple different ways. He talks about two main groups. He talks about the prideful and the haughty or self-sufficient. And then he talks about the, the humble and the lowly over and over in this book. He's comparing and contrasting those two. And what he says is that in the middle of this culture that's mostly full of the prideful, mostly full of those people who believe they can get true life on their own, there's also this group that's humble and lowly, that knows that this world isn't really what they're made for, that knows that wealth and social status, that those things won't sustain them. Those people know their need for God. That's the humble and the lowly. These are the ones who can't be tempted to trust in silver and gold because they don't have a lot of it. These are the ones who don't think that worldly power is the way forward because they don't have a lot of worldly power. They're looking around their broken lives and saying, I need something more than what this world can give. Those are the ones that God says he will forgive. Those are the ones that God redeems and restores. Those who know they need him. And that's a complete reversal of the tendencies that we have in our world. See, typically, we think that those who are most socially esteemed, those who have the most material possessions, they're the ones that are really blessed by God. They're the ones that have figured out life. They're the haves, and the rest of us are the have-nots, right? But God flips that paradigm on its head. God says that he is nearest to those who know they need him. He's nearest to those who know they need him. Those who can see right through the facade of worldly power and prestige and instead say, I need the true life of God beyond all of these things. We learn here that the people who think they're self-sufficient, the people who think they can get true life on their own, they're going to be proved wrong. And the people who know they need the Lord, those are the ones who will find true and lasting life. And man, do we need to hear this in 21st century America. See, we all live with a culture, an American system that's built on our ingenuity and our self-sustainability. We believe that we can get most of what we need based on our actions. Our entire culture flows from the assumption that consuming and accumulating things will make us safe and happy. 
every one of you is viewed by American culture as someone who should accumulate and consume in order to provide safety and security and happiness in your life. An example of this, uh, the self-storage industry. We don't have enough room for all the things that we've accumulated, so we have to buy more room. It's a $40 billion industry in the United States. We've accumulated so much that we don't know what to do with it. And we've said, you know what? I just need more space because I can't get rid of these things. That would threaten my security. That would mean that I'm not fully self-sufficient. That might mean that I have to take a risk to love someone else. And so I'm just going to kind of hoard these things to myself. I'm going to keep them and protect myself. I'm going to build up a wall of stuff in my life. And most of our pursuits are rooted in this accumulation and consuming. Our decisions are made based on what can get us the bigger house, what can get us the better promotion, how can we move into a neighborhood with people that we really like a lot, how can we get more money and social status, more followers in our lives. And this even leaks into how many of us approach the church, you guys. What's the, the dominant two questions that most people in our culture ask when they leave a church service to evaluate whether that was a good service or not? two main questions that most people ask. One, did I like the sermon? Two, did I like the music? Did I like the sermon? Did I like the music? Do you see how that is a default consumeristic approach to church? What did this place give me so that I can feel better about myself? What did this place give me so that I can feel secure in myself? The questions are not, how effective was the witness of the love of Jesus in that place? How incredible was that community that loved and surrounded one another and prayed for one another? It wasn't about the freedom that God gives us from oppression and pain. It was about what I got. It was about how I can build my own nice, neat, sustained life. And this is a human problem. It's not just an American problem. It was a problem for Zeph. It was a problem for Jesus, too. Jesus tells a pretty famous parable. It's called the parable of the rich fool in his ministry. Some of you may remember this. He says, this rich man had so much stuff that he didn't know what to do with. And then the rich man had an idea. I know. I'm going to build a barn so that I can store all my extra stuff. I'm going to have a nice little self-storage unit, right? a storehouse for all of my overwhelming wealth. And Jesus says, this guy missed it. He missed the point of what it means to be human. It's not about self-sustaining. It's about giving yourself away for the other See, the way that God called Judah and us, all humans, to partner with him isn't through accumulating goods, but sharing goods. It's not through building a bubble of comfort around ourselves, but through looking beyond ourselves to those who are most in need in our world. And it's not through the obtaining of bigger places to store our stuff, but through the practice of giving our stuff away so that others can experience God's peace and love. It was a problem in Jesus' day. It was also a problem in the day of a guy named Basil. We call him Saint Basil the Great now. And we call him the Great because he said stuff like this. He was commenting on this parable that Jesus tells. And he says, if you want storehouses, you have them in the stomachs of the poor. If you want storehouses, you have them in the stomachs of the poor. Friends, we failed to partner with God. I have failed in my life, to partner with God in this way. I've hoarded and I've protected and I've tried to be self-sufficient. And yet, what Zeph tells us here is that when we recognize this in our lives, God will always forgive us. Every time. 
No matter how far you've gone, no matter how much you've built in your life to sustain yourself, God will always, always give you grace and love when you realize your need for him and turn to him. That's what the humble and the lowly do in Zeph, in this book. They regularly recognize their need for God and turn back to God, and God always receives them with mercy. Friends, God does not want to condemn you. God wants to see you live the life you were made for. He longs to forgive you and restore you. He longs to forgive and restore this whole world. And that means that the only way forward for us is to release the things that we think we can sustain ourselves with. So you can't get forgiveness if your hands are closed. You can only receive the grace of God to the degree that you acknowledge you need it. It's the only way. Which means that the only people who don't get that grace, friends, are the ones who think they don't need it. Those are the only people who can't receive the love of God are the people who think, I'm good. I'm good without it. I've got my silver, I've got my gold, I've got my self-storage unit and my promotion and my home. I'm good. I don't need it. Those are the only people that don't get the lasting life of God. But the humble and the lowly, we're told that they can rejoice. Those who know they need God can rejoice because they know that every time they turn to God, he gives the life that they were made for. The grace and the love of our God is bestowed upon them and they can rejoice. So that's the first thing that Zeph says. But he doesn't stop with the forgiveness of God. He continues in this passage to talk about the delight of God in us, that God delights to restore us. So after this forgiveness bit, did you guys notice these words? They're really compelling and poetic. He says that the Lord rejoices over us with gladness. He renews us in his love. He exalts over us with loud singing. Those who recognize that they need the Lord and those who turn to the Lord will always find a God that loves them deeply, that delights in their very existence and being. Sometimes we get a picture of God that he kind of just lets us in the back door. God forgives us, but we better not mess up again. Or we have this view of God that says, you know, if God really, really fully knew how corrupt I was, if he knew how deep this stuff went, he wouldn't actually let me in. Those are all false impressions of God, friends, that scripture does not give us. And to be clear, I've lived with these two. I still struggle with false understandings of God. It happened this week for me. I was preparing this sermon, and I was sitting down for a couple hours reading some commentaries and writing notes down, and I kept typing things out and then deleting them, typing things out and then deleting them. I had all these ideas. And after two hours, I had like two lines written. And I was frustrated. I was angry. Two full hours, I was like, what the heck is wrong with me? And I stormed around my house Emily like, made sure she got to avoid Clint a little bit. I was just frustrated. And in the middle of that, I started to recognize, what's actually going on in me? Let's pause real quick and just evaluate the anger that I'm feeling. What I've learned over time is that anger is often connected to sadness. And so if you want to know what you're angry about, you usually have to dig into what are you sad about. And I was sad that I didn't have something of quality that I felt like I could give. I was sad that my performance wasn't seemingly going to stack up, or at least tonight it didn't. And that was connected to an anxiety that I often have had in my life, to win the approval of other people and to win my own self-approval. I have lived a life that has often been mired in that sort of anxiety, that I want to make sure that the things that I do are approved by me and are approved by the people around me. And I am regularly battling 
that sense of approval. And what I've learned from reading this text is that no amount of worldly approval, no amount of worldly praise will ever fully satisfy that need in my heart. And the only thing that can is the approval of my Father in heaven. The only thing that can is the approval of the God who delights in me. Many of us fail to rejoice in our lives because we are consumed with finding the approval or love or fulfillment of God in other places that can't give it. We're consumed with proving ourselves. We're consumed with what we can bring to a situation that makes us valuable. And what Zeph says here and what the whole of Scripture says is that the Lord delights in you, friends. Every single one of you. He looks at you and calls you beloved son, beloved daughter. The God of the universe, the one who knows you more deeply than you know yourself, says, my child, I love you. My child, I desire the best for you. My child, there's nothing you can do to change my love for you. You are infinitely valuable. Those of you who have children in this room might just get a little glimpse of that feeling when you look at your little one. There's a guy named Henry Nowen who writes about this in his book, Life of the Beloved. And this quote really struck me this week and was something I needed to hear in the middle of my my week. Henry Nowen said, I kept running around in large or small circles, always looking for someone or something to convince me of my belovedness. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. Friends, we can rejoice because we know that God rejoices in us. We know that God delights in us, and we know that God longs to restore us to the life we were made for. He receives us with a hug. He puts the best clothes on us, and he cooks the best meal so that we can party when we return to him. We recognize our need for him. He celebrates. But that's not the only reason we rejoice. Zeph says we can also rejoice because God conquers oppression in the world. We notice this in verse 19. See, the, the mercy, the forgiveness of God, those are great things to talk about. But the reality is that many of us have experienced pain, injustice, or we know people who have experienced pain and injustice. And so we have to answer the question, what's God going to do about those things? What is God's response to those who oppress, who harm, who inflict pain on other people maliciously? And it's quite clear in verse 19 that God will deal with all of your oppressors. That's what Zeph tells us. And in his day, he was talking about a wide variety of people, people who experienced ethnic prejudices, people who had been taken advantage of by the wealthy, people who were needy and overlooked, people who had experienced pain and trauma in their lives. He says that God's character is one that responds to those things, that hears the cries of the oppressed and says, I will act on your behalf. I will bring justice into the world. And that's just as true for us today. The character of God has not changed, friends. The character of God is one that sides with the lame, with the outcast, with the vulnerable, with the needy. That's something to rejoice in because those people fill our world. Those people fill this place every week. If you want to be on the side of God, you're going to be on the side of the oppressed because God knows their pain. God hears their cries and God will heal them. God is going to bring true lasting justice for the abused, for the marginalized, for the refugee, for the widow, for the orphan, for the single mother. God brings true, lasting justice. That's something to rejoice in, friends. But that's not where Zeph stops. He gives us a fourth thing in this passage. He says that we can rejoice in the nearness of God. 
We're told in verses 15 and 17 that the Lord is in your midst and that that should bring us rejoicing. But why, right? What about the nearness of God brings rejoicing? Well, I've got actually a, a nice little kind of word study here from the word that's translated in your midst here. The word is karev in Hebrew. And it's used a couple different times in Zephaniah. And so I actually have an image here that I want to throw up somewhere. It's the first one here. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 5, we're told that the, the people who commit corrupt deeds, who commit injustice, who commit pain onto people, those people are in the midst of Jerusalem, in the midst of the city. Same word that's used here. Those people are moving, and that's obvious to us in our world today as well. We know that the corrupt and the prideful and the oppressive, they're in our midst. But they're not the only things there. So I'm going to go ahead and move to the next slide. Zeph also says that God is in the midst of the city. That means that God is always in and moving in the spaces where corruption and oppression exist. Those things don't get the last word. God is in their midst as much as the people who are corrupt. God is at work, and darkness never gets the last word, according to Zeph. Even when it's hard to see him, we get the promise that God is in our midst. And I know it's easy to look around our world and say, yeah, I don't know if I believe that. Because look at this racial injustice, or look at this political fighting. Look at the pain and trauma that we go through. I don't know that God is in our midst. And I get that tension, friends. I feel it as well. But so does Zeph. Remember, he's not naive. He knows how messed up the world is. But he also knows that God replies to that. That God doesn't leave those things that way. God has not remained silent. Instead, God's come into our midst. If you want the ultimate reminder of who God is, remember this, that God is near to us even when all things are breaking down. And if you want a picture of what that looks like, you're in luck because this Advent season gives it to us. We learn that God has come into our midst. Hear these words from Matthew chapter 1. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God in our midst. Friends, the arrival of Jesus into this corrupt world is the answer to all the questions we have about where God has been and what God is doing. Jesus is the reply. He's the ultimate evidence of God's nearness to us. God has entered into the same space as all of the brokenness and said, I'm going to heal that. I'm going to experience it, and then I'm going to heal it so that my people can have the life that they were made for again. And it turns out that that arrival of Jesus, it's the full picture of what Zeph has been unpacking for us in this chapter. Jesus is the ultimate look into the character of this God. Think about it. All of the ways that he tells us to rejoice, that God has forgiven us, that happens in the person of Jesus, who comes into the world and takes on the death that we have wrought from our brokenness and gives us life on the other side of it. Friends, if you have deeply felt the pain and consequence of sin in your life, your own sin or the sin that others have inflicted upon you, this Jesus is here to redeem that. He's here to heal it. He's here to forgive it. All that you've done and all that you've failed to do. We also learn that we can rejoice because Jesus reminds us that God delights in us. Jesus went around the ancient world looking at all of the people who were forgotten and overlooked in that society and looked them in the eyes. He touched them, he healed them, and he said, God loves you. 
God delights in the ones who are farthest from him. God delights in all of this world, and he longs to see them restored. Jesus is the reminder of that to us. We also know that Jesus brought justice into the world. He lowered down the prideful and the oppressive kings and rulers, and he elevates the humble and the lowly. And this was so ingrained into who he was that it was actually part of his own identity. You guys consider that? Jesus didn't come as a highfalutin politician or king. He came into the world as a child, into a no-name, humble and lowly family, from a no-name town called Nazareth, born in a manger. And then his family had to become refugees. They had to flee their home because of the oppression that was happening in their nation. They had to come back after being refugees. And he took on a vocation of carpenter, which was a laborer in that time. It was not an esteemed position. Jesus embodies the position of the humble and the lowly. He knows it and he elevates those people. And we learn that because he did that, he is exalted on high at the end of things. The humble and the lowly are raised up by Jesus. And then finally, friends, this Advent season is one of rejoicing because we know that Jesus has come near to us. And that is happening right now. I want to ask all of you right now to just look around the room at other people. Make awkward eye contact, smile. Many of you know each other a little bit, maybe a lot a bit. The fact that Jesus has come near to us is evident in all of you. The redemption and restoration of God is working right now, walking up and down these aisles, healing everyone in this room. If you want evidence that God is near to you, it is here in Jesus. It is here in all of your lives. And so in keeping with this series, I want to end this time with an invitation to everybody. Uh, everyone, I'm going to ask you to, to get your phones out, cell phones out. Phones in church. Let's do it. Get your phones out. Pull up the app on your phone that you use as an alarm clock. Give you a sec to do that. When you're there, I want you to put three alarms, daily alarms on your clock. One around the time that you wake up in the morning, one in the middle of your day sometime when you get a break, and then one right before you go to bed at the end of the day. Put three alarms on there. Just put a general time in right now. You can specialize it if you need to later. And then in the description of those alarms, write this. Rejoice in what Jesus has done. Rejoice in what Jesus has done. And every time those alarms go off, from now until Christmas, until when we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, take two minutes in your day and rejoice in what Jesus has done in your life. It's going to be unique. It's going to be different for each of you. But take the time to rejoice. Maybe it's going to be rejoicing in forgiveness that you received. Maybe it's rejoicing in a restored relationship that you have. Maybe it's rejoicing in the justice that Christ brings to you or your neighbors. Whatever it looks like, friends, take the time in your weeks. Because if we become a community that can put on some 60s and 70s music and start dancing to it in the world that's broken, people are going to look at us and say, something's going on there. See, they're looking at the same world. They fully acknowledge everything that's broken, and yet they are finding reasons to rejoice. There's something that they have that the world will need. This community, if we commit to this rejoicing, we can be a witness to our neighbors, to our friends in this Christmas season who are mired in all of the self-sufficiency that our world gives them. And I can't think of anything more worthwhile than that, friends. Every one of you is invited to rejoice. Let's pray.